Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Michael Bonner, an historian, political advisor, and according to Nassim Taleb, a, quote, rare bird. He's also the author of the must-read new book, In Defense of Civilization, How Our Past Can Renew Our Present, which has already received considerable praise for its depth, breadth, and big ideas. I'm grateful to speak with him about the similarities between the modern West and empires and societies that have collapsed in the past and what we can do to avoid their fate. Michael, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues and congratulations on the book. Thanks. And thanks very much for having me. It's good to see you again. It's an ambitious book. You write that its purpose is threefold. One, to explain what makes civilization what it is. Two, to show what we are in danger of losing in the event of collapse. And three, to point the way toward renewal. Let's start with that first aim, Michael. What is a civilization? What distinguishes it? How do we know when we're part of one? Well, this is a sort of million-dollar question. Um, how you know when you're part of one, I think, is the more uh, sort of salient thing than trying to define it abstractly. And um, <clears throat> that's what I do in the book, that there's some kind of shift that occurs uh, in human history from the period that we call the upper Paleolithic to, you know, the sort of beginning and sort of middle of the new stone age or, or Neolithic and trying to describe how, or trying to describe what that difference is and how we get from uh, you know, wandering around, uh, hunting and gathering to, you know, living in one place and so forth. That is, uh, you know, that's at the heart of answering that question. If you look at, well, first of all, I should say, we, we obviously don't really have texts. We don't have texts at all. So there's nothing you can read about how, you know, your, your typical sort of Paleolithic person felt about anything or, um, you know, how he, uh, you know, viewed his place in the world and so forth. But but there are paintings. There are paintings within caves. There are um, musical instruments, flutes. Um, there's the the sort of beginnings of pottery and things like that. So you know you you can you can look at those things and to sort of compare what they are like uh, then with what they are like sort of after people have settled down. And what I think I see is a representation of um, human beings placed in the world 
suddenly becoming clearer that there is a some reason has appeared for people to settle down in 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 one place and instead of the sort of ferocious energy and vitality that you find in paleolithic art uh you also begin to find um narrative and uh depictions of rootedness and 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 stability in in the art that comes later nobody for instance just to give you some examples here you know there's obviously uh, putting aside questions of sort of like the survivorship bias nobody seems to have ever painted a horizon or a sun or a moon or a group of persons a family uh until very very late in our history as a species the question is why and the answer that i give is what has taken shape what has developed is what we call civilization the book describes three quote outcomes that you associate with a civilization including a sense of clarity beauty and order how do these three outcomes find expression in a civilization how are they cultivated? And perhaps more importantly, how are they lost? Oh, a deep question. Well, first of all, I should say, I mean, people people can probably quibble with these sort of rubrics or whatever. And, and they obviously are, I think, interrelated to, to some extent. And, um, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, subjectivity that goes into recognizing these things. And I understand that. But we have to find or, or I, I wanted to find sort of headings or, as I say, rubrics or these, these concepts that, that could form some kind of basis of assessing uh, human material culture and philosophy or politics or what have you over a long, long period of time. So looking at something like the interior of uh, an old kingdom Egyptian tomb, for instance, um, which is obviously, you know, very, very, very early in um, the development of uh, civilized life. What what do you see? Well, there are images of the world. There are uh, uh, writing, writing in the form of uh, hieroglyphs. And if you if you if you look at them, what are they trying to tell you well first of all you have this portrait of human beings and nature in which everything seems sort of coherent and and orderly it isn't it isn't like the jumble that you see in uh paleolithic art uh sometimes egyptian art can seem kind of rigid and stiff and so forth with maybe less of that sort of vitality that you find in in earlier art but nevertheless you see this sort of coherent um orderly picture uh writing itself takes the form of of images and pictures not um you know signs that represent um just sounds and um the art is executed with um what you know what what you would call sort of measurement or or like a heavy a heavy emphasis on proportions and 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 uh, Symmetry, <clears throat> even even to the point sometimes of of 
a bit of what you might call a distortion in Egyptian art. You know, the, the sort of the famous stereotype of people walking with their arms funny. Or the, uh, nevertheless, what you're seeing is an idealized picture of clarity, clear, intelligible images, and language taking the, the form of images. You see symmetrical, you see beauty expressed as symmetry, and you see political and religious order taking shape in um, the way um, nature or, or kings and officials and so forth are portrayed. Now, again, I said people might be able to quibble with this, but if you keep these things in mind, I think that you can see an evolution or a decline in these uh, rubrics uh, over time. Uh, when the um, Egyptian uh, state sort of collapses or, or when the, the dynastic history comes to a sort of halt in, in what are known as the intermediate periods, you can see these, these things sort of deteriorating. And the farther you go, the, 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 the worse uh, it gets after a while. And you know the very, very last hieroglyphic inscription ever <clears throat> comes from the late uh, Roman period. It's just this disorderly jumble. You know, someone would still have been able to read it, but it is very, very far from um, the uh, the you know the beauty and the the, the structure and order of of, of the old uh, kingdom. Now, projecting this very, very far into the future, up into our own time, you can see that you know these principles are still there, but we in the modern world have lost a sense of measurement and proportion in art and you know the the sort of various trad movements online are constantly lamenting this and so forth but i'm not really convinced that they really understand um what has happened um but just to pursue that one example because this is you know an increasingly deep subject i would say that we have to we have to understand that there is a deeper current of of thought and 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 of outlook that is behind this question just to focus on the the beauty question on the question of symmetry and and measurement it presupposes fundamentally that the universe is intelligible and coherent and that you can depict it through um mathematical uh expressions this is something that ancient people took for granted. I don't know if anybody ever wrote it down before Pythagoras, but Pythagoras himself must have inherited it from someone because we know that Egyptian and Mesopotamian art were structured according to grids and, and what we call a canon of, of, of measurement. So it's not that we don't know how to draw anymore or that we've somehow forgotten how to measure things. Obviously, we are, if anything, we are probably better at measuring things than anyone ever has been at any other time. But we no longer believe that the universe is a coherent uh, whole, whose the features of which uh, can be measured. That may sound crazy, but it is true. What happened is that <clears throat> artists who have always been very susceptible to this kind of thing, were really quite impressed by uh, the discoveries of modern physics in the, in the late 19th and early 20th century. And what they thought they learned from physics was that everything was a kind of incoherent jumble. 
that Einstein's theories of relativity were true. Uh, quantum mechanics were also true, but the two contradicted one another. Now, outside the art world, this contradiction reaches a kind of peak of absurdity in in the um, postmodernists who invoke things like the uncertainty principle or you know uh, Schrödinger's cat or whatever in in kind of bizarre literary forms, which they fundamentally misunderstand. But the difference in the early 20th century is that artists really did make an effort to try to understand these things um, and and try to depict a world with four dimensions and, you know, trying to show in some kind of visual form, you know, what this space-time continuum was and so forth. And ironically, even those principles have been forgotten and now we merely repeat artists repeat what they see in, in, in early 20th century art. Now, whether you think that's a decline or not, you know, obviously there'll be sort of half the world is going to tell me that this, you know, that I'm wrong. I think that is a form of decline. It is kind of demoralizing in a sense to think that the world you inhabit is somehow unintelligible and that you are somehow incapable of, of, of doing it, which is very, which is a fundamentally different concept from saying we accept that the world is intelligible but we also accept that we're too stupid to understand it. Now we're saying um, not only is it too complex for us, it cannot, it simply cannot be understood by anyone or anything, and we're not even going to try. The book, interestingly, dedicates a considerable amount of attention to architecture. What's the relationship in your mind, Michael, between architecture and the health of a civilization? And what lessons does the past provide about it? Yeah, well. I mean, architecture is an interesting one because it is a it is a form of artistic expression that combines um, so many other aspects of, of of human life that it could be it could be considered the most important sort of social art or social activity that that we can actually engage in. Not only because we need protection from the elements. But also because the idea of a permanent building where people gather for a social purpose or where um, someone or a family dwell or where work takes place or, you know, it's the best way we have of marking out a piece of space uh, uh, for some kind of particular purpose. And of course, if you build it to last, it also extends through now again based on what i think i understand about the development of settled life this must be considered architecture must be considered one of the most important um developments that, that arises from the idea of a of a sort of stable and and and, and settled uh, existence and that it's not the contrary to what a lot of people might assume it is not the you know, it's not like beautiful classical architecture of any particular kind that makes the civilization. It is the civilization that makes it. You have to have the sense of stability and permanence and rootedness first, right? This is why um, uh, this is this is why things like Nazi or Soviet architects architecture doesn't really seem particularly moving or appealing, 
that it's a kind of it's either a kind of faux classical uh, pastiche without any of the beliefs behind it, uh, or it's uh, meant to express the sort of crushing power of of, of a sort of huge totalitarian uh, state. So civilized architecture should should satisfy human needs. It should be built on a human uh, scale. It should be built with social and and uh, communal purposes uh, in mind. It should not uh, challenge us. It should not, um, you know, uh, it should not attempt to make any particular points about anything by by making us feel confused or uncomfortable. Now, this may seem kind of obvious, uh, and I'm, uh, you know. T- to to a certain extent, I'm repeating ideas that have been, you know, expressed many times by the former Prince Charles, now now King Charles III. Um, but it's not really sinking in. Contemporary architecture out, outside, I must say, outside um, family homes, for the most part, contemporary architecture is. Uh, uncomfortable it isn't built to last it's hard to tell where the door is um it's built on such a large scale that you have to stand you know miles away in order to take it in um i think that this is a problem when you get into um uh postmodernist architecture like the work of eisenman for instance in some in some cases um you know, there there are stairways to nowhere or huge holes in the floor. Um, some houses he built uh, didn't have toilets in them. You know, there the, are the a lot of sort of oddities that that, uh, that that crop up that I think are meant to make some kind of particular point about contemporary life, uh, but which leave us uh, ultimately um, uh, unsatisfied and 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 uncomfortable. More effort, I think, should go into, um, as I say, meeting human needs, putting people at ease and creating creating spaces that are protected from the elements that, that allow social intercourse to occur, and that, um, you know, mark out a particular, uh, 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 mark out a particular space for a particular purpose over time. And to, just to put this into perspective, Look at uh, look at downtown Ottawa, the parliamentary precinct, you know, um, made originally in in the late nineteenth uh, century, and then parts of it were rebuilt in the in the early twentieth because of a fire. You know, this is a this is an expression. Uh, it's actually quite monumental if you stand near it. It's surprisingly big, as many people will will, will discover. This is an expression of permanence. Uh, and and sort of a, a monumental expression of the uh, you know the solidity and and uh, 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 power of, of of a new uh, country, and then compare that to the buildings that sort of went up uh, around it or or near it in in successive ages, the you know the the Pearson buildings or the 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 John Diefenbaker building, which looked like they come out of Star Trek or you know something like that um or the 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 sort of brutalist monstrosity across the the way at the uh uh place du partage it's just a fundamentally different set of ideas uh and you can see how you know our outlook has changed over time and not necessarily for the better 
it speaks to a broader line of thinking in the book about progress. If assumptions of progress are a distinguishing characteristic of modern life, you aren't convinced. You open the book with a great line, quote, human history is largely a record of failure, unquote. Talk a bit about how you think about progress and failure. How should we think about them in the context of the book's grand sweep of history? Well, first of all, I would say I, I don't, you're, you're absolutely right. I don't believe that progress is a real thing, which, which, which is to say, um, it's not that, it's not that I don't think that things can get better. I think that they can, but I think that there are obvious limits on how good they can get. Um, but, um, they can also get worse. They can also deteriorate and decline and they do. And it's just odd to me that, modern people need to be reminded of this you know if if your if your only experience of life is from say um i don't know the the 1940s up until you know 1995 or something you might think that or at least if you live in the west you might think that yeah everything just kept getting better and better and better and then if you died in you know the late 90s or whatever you might go to your grave thinking that that's just the way the world was, but you would be wrong. Um, it isn't, not only is progress not a law of history, um, it also hasn't really, uh, um, you know, there's just like not really a good reason to, to, to believe that. And I'll, I'll give you one important example. Um, the, the, the so-called medieval dark age, um, you know, from from say the ninth or tenth century to the dawn of the uh, uh, the Renaissance or the sort of age of exploration, you know, this was a time when when schoolmasters will tell you that this was somehow some sort of like benighted uh, age of of cruelty and oppression and 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 so forth. And of course, that's nonsensical. Um, but the great, the great religious wars, the persecutions and all the witch burnings happened after the Renaissance. So that, that's one, I think, critical example of how a much older time, which is, you know, greatly maligned still by a lot of people was in, in at least one critical way more civilized than what came, uh, after. And of course, the experience of the 20th century with the, the two world wars and um, ideological struggles and so forth. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It, it, there's, there's a part of me where, where I want to say that I, I really don't understand how anyone can associate that with, with an age of, of, uh, of, of progress. Um, there's also an interesting book out now um, by uh, uh, Mary Harrington called Feminism Against Progress, which, which is, um, another, you know, which is this kind of the same perspective on 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 another uh, topic, which is basically that you know, granting that progress, granting that certain things did in fact improve, that there there was a limit to them, and now um, you know the the urge to sort of move beyond the biological limits of 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 the human species and so forth is actually going to create uh, problems. So not only is not only is the doctrine of progress not um, a law of history, it isn't. It isn't inevitable, but it is. It, it's. It also can have a tendency to lead in sort of dark places, which we saw in the 20th century. Um, so I'm inclined to be very skeptical of, of it, 
I think that as a, not just as a political conservative, but as a sort of small C conservative person, I think that um, there are many things that we got right the first time and that they can't really be improved. I mean, you can't really make a bowl or a cup any better than the, the, the first bowl or cup. Uh, there, the, you know, uh, jet engines are not really significantly, you know, faster, like planes, planes sort of reached their peak in the seventies. And since then we've been trying to sort of make them safer rather than faster. There are limits to these things. And history itself is more like a cycle, uh, just like an economy. You know, the economy doesn't just keep getting bigger. It, the, you know, boom and bust are part of a single cycle and um you know uh unity and dissolution are also part of a cycle in a in a, in a society and you know the formation uh and and growth of of civilization is also followed by uh collapse more often than not so um basically uh you know when we were told in the 1990s that everything was just sort of going to keep getting better and you know up and up forever and so forth like that that was that wasn't true and there may be nothing we can do to stave off uh you know decline and eventual collapse and you know on the on the longest possible scale you know the like the the sun will eventually explode so you know like it's it's all sort of headed in a toward calamity anyway there may be nothing we can do about that but there are certain things that we can certainly try to avoid in order to accelerate these problems and one of the things you can do if you really want to make things worse is to uproot yourself from what worked before from the past um and you know try to create this sort of new futurist uh, utopia which was you know in one form or another the dominant outlook of of uh, uh, elites and intellectuals uh, in the 20th century and I think we've paid a high price for it. Let me follow up, Michael. How can we then distinguish between good progress and bad progress? Give us a framework for judging between the two. Mm, well, I think that, that is, look, this is a very deep question. How do you know? That, I guess another way of phrasing it would be, how do you know when something is good enough? Um, how do you know when something works? It may be that you have to go through, or we as a species have to go through this cycle of collapse and rebirth, you know, many, many times in order to figure that out. But the fact is that, you know, the, the earliest, the earliest civilizations did in fact collapse. They didn't, they didn't just simply evolve. They did collapse. Although, and, and if they didn't, you know, we would still have Sumer and Akkad and, you know, uh, ancient Egypt with us right now. They did indeed. Uh, collapse, but despite those collapses, everybody seems to have thought that uh, the right thing to do was try to try to put them back together and and carry on. I think that we have the advantage of being able to look back on quite a long sweep of history and um, look at what worked, and you know what worked because it has lasted. So um, that's probably a kind of um, disappointing answer um but you know there are real limits there are real limits apart from just thinking about what worked and sort of observing 
um, the past. There are real limits to, I think, to, to, to you know, what we can achieve or what we can do as as a species. They are imposed by uh, biology, and when we have, uh, when or by nature, when, when and when we have tried to supersede them in the past, as we tried in the early twentieth century, uh, or maybe even like the idea of the perfectibility of man that comes out of the Enlightenment and so on. When we have tried that, not only did things not really work out well, but it, it was just disastrous. We have to be aware of this. You know, where are the people, for instance, who, you know, a healthy a healthy suspicion of something like tech or the sort of like you know internet um, internet technology? You know, the, the, there's a tendency to sort of dismiss this kind of thing, but you know, we might want to, we might want to take it a little bit more seriously speed in general, or, you know, asking ourselves, you know, what are potential downsides of new things? You know, that That's just sort of not really part of popular outlook right now. There's a huge emphasis still on innovation. And I think in a, in, in the present circumstances in which almost everyone can admit that something is wrong or something feels off or, you know, that the the technological utopia that we were promised hasn't really come to pass. There's still a lot of people who think that the way out is is some some other piece of innovation, some new gadget or outlook or something. And I think that that's probably wrong. That we should instead think about um, you know potential downsides first of all, and second, you know what what has actually worked in the past, what made us what made us happy and virtuous before. And whether whether that stuff is not worth uh, holding on to. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of the Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the big, ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts so if you're enjoying them please listen to these episodes with pathways give us your feedback we'd love your input but also share them with friends and family that would be greatly appreciated well with that advertisement over let's go back to our regular programming let's stay on this line of discussion for a minute you write in the book that quote long ago we developed the urge to create a new and different world and we've uprooted ourselves from the old one. In so doing, we have badly disrupted our sense of place and purpose, unquote. Michael, talk about causality here. How has our instinct towards what you might call utopianism contributed to the sense of attenuation and disorder that defines the current era? So I, th- I, I thought that when I wrote that, that sort of half the world would accuse me of, of being a, a pagan or heretic or something because what's at the root of that is a kind of secularization if that's a real word a secularizing of a a sort of judeo-christian vision of time 
which is that it has a goal. History has a goal, right? And, and you know, people like, I'm not going to list names, but like there, there's a kind of like a Hegelian or Marxist uh, interpretation of that, that 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 comes about in the 19th century that 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 our, our 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 special friend Francis Fukuyama picked up on that history has this purpose or direction. Okay, if you are a Christian uh, or a Muslim or 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 a Jew, that will take a kind of eschatological um uh form in in the idea that that there is a plan there there is a divine plan unfolding in the world and then it comes to an end uh at, at the end of time at which there's a kind of final judgment or something. If however if you're into that idea but you think it's taking too long or something like that, you know, you might persuade yourself that you can do something to to accelerate it. To make it happen sooner, or to realize uh, this divine uh, plan here on Earth, and that you can transform yourself. Um, you know, there are passages in Saint Paul that that seem to suggest that there's some kind of like, you know, he talks about putting on a new man or like becoming kind of new, renewing yourself. And so, if if you take that literally, you can persuade yourself that that you are. Um, able to do that in some kind of non-spiritual um, sense. And the result will be uh, <laughs> the result will be something like the revolutionary terror uh, or Bolshevism, you know, the new Soviet man, uh, or you know, the kind of uh, purified uh, the kind of like end of a, of a racial struggle in history that, you know, the Nazis believed in and so forth. So I have a very dim view of of trying to take that stuff literally and sort of act it out in uh in 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 real life. So um if you know in in but anyway as I say luckily nobody has yet attacked me about this or 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 criticized me but that is what is at the root of that and I don't I don't want anyone to 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 assume or to to think that I'm secretly tr- trying to blame Christianity or something like that which I am I am I am not but there is this tendency in in western thought to to think that you can detect a direction in in history and then sort of push it forward and you know famously I don't know if people I don't know if anyone has talked like this really very recently. It's it, it, I, I could I could hear someone like Justin Trudeau saying stuff like this, but I remember I remember Obama talking about uh, being on the right side of history and and you know um, like the the there's that quotation made popular by um, Martin Luther King about the the uh, the arc of history, bend toward justice and so forth, and you know maybe you can sort of make it bend with a little bit of effort and so forth. You know, I, I just don't, I, I don't think that that's ultimately a very healthy uh, outlook. I think it's going to lead to um, disappointment and his, and, and to violence as, as it has uh, uh, in, in the, in the past. But I, I, I fear I'm rambling now and I've forgotten the, the, the sort of force of your question. Let me, ask a follow-up because one of the things i wondered as i read the book is are there any true conservatives left today in your view 
And how would a conservatism rooted in the book's ideas diverge from its contemporary form? Okay, so I have friends who no longer speak of conservatism. They talk about something more like reconstructionism because they are so cynical, uh, jaded, or disappointed that they think that there's nothing left to conserve. Now, I'm I'm kind of afraid. I mean, literally afraid that 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 could be true. Although I don't know for certain. You know, what if if I were if I were um, like a late if we were in late Roman times and I were some sort of monk or uh, bureaucrat fleeing a a barbarian uh, in, invasion or something. You know, what would I take with? From 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 the the present state of affairs, you know, would it be like the collected works of Beyonce? You know, would it, would it be um, you know the novels of of like would it be like the Harry Potter story? You know, I don't I don't I I, I don't know. Like I think I think you see what I'm what I'm getting at. But the you know, <clears throat> uh, are there true conservatives? I mean, this is this is this is a question that has actually come up many times in the past. And I would point to a figure like Confucius, who felt that in his time, it was a, it was a period of great upheaval and disorder, and that he was harking back to a much more ancient time, the the sort of a pre the long before the Chinese unification. He thought that the peak of Chinese um, civilization was in the Zhou state. Z Z H. Uh, Oh, you I had a video at once. I, I did a video presentation and the, the AI that, that, um, indicated the sort of parts of the presentation. It's, it, it's, uh, I was talking about the Duke of Joe and it's spelled to J O E. So it's not the Duke of Joe. It's Z Z H O U. This is something, this is like centuries before Confucius and he holds this up as, as the, um, peak of, of Chinese civilization. Not his own time, and he he and his followers are trying to reconstruct this very ancient period, um, and its and its values and, and customs and so forth. We can you know we can do the same thing. We don't have a tradition like Confucianism in the West, but um, you know we we arguably need one. That the 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 idea that we are somehow trying that we as Small C conservatives are trying to uh, just sort of keep things the way they are right now. You know that would never like that's philosophically sort of um, uh, incoherent because that if if we had always been doing that, then you know nothing would ever have changed. And obviously we know that it did. But the idea that there was a spirit of the the age of 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 the of the Duke of Joe that that could sort of animate and inform you know, all of future history, you know, like that's a, that's a valuable idea, which I think we might be able to um, learn from. There's also, you know, the, the much, much denigrated uh, um, uh, Eastern Roman, you know, Byzantine state that sort of went, you know, carried on for a very long time, um, seemingly unchanged. Of course it did, it did change. It did evolve in, in a sense, but the, you know the the linguistic and artistic forms were kept very very uh, uh, 
they, they were very tightly controlled and 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 changed little. Um, you know, that's a, that is an example of a Western civilization that 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 was intensely uh, conservative, uh, that held its own against you know, sort of extremely hostile uh, forces around it that we might wish to uh, look at. But in any case. It, the, the remedy is is roughly the same, which is um, reestablishing some kind of connection uh, with the past. And I note, you know, where I live now, I no longer live in Toronto. I note, you know, looking around me in the in the sort of rural area of of Durham, all these old um, abandoned graveyards where you know people who I don't know if they have any descendants or anything like that but they're, they're still sort of um you know they're 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 no longer used and in, in that sense they're abandoned they're still sort of maintained and, and so forth but you know these are symbols of some kind of past that that is is by north american standards you know rather old quite you know it's, we're looking at maybe 200 200 odd years here uh you know we would do better, I think, to try to maintain um, something like that, uh, some sort of sense of a, a physical presence or continuity with with uh, our our ancestors, uh, than I don't know, uh, arguing endlessly about tax rates or something. You know, not that that isn't important, but uh, it's that kind of um sense of of history and 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 feeling of permanence and and so forth that i think we as conservatives uh, need to need to try to recover in his review of the book for the hub howard anglin wrote quote civilization is inextricably connected with religious worship a good reminder that the cult at the heart of culture has always been a shared religion unquote assuming you agree with him what does that mean for so much of the Western world that is increasingly secularizing? Can we have a civilization divorced from religion? Mm. Well, the short answer is no, because one religion will drive out another. In my my view in the book, yes, I agree with Howard exactly. Uh, but I also add that the the tendency toward religion is something that cannot be uh, avoided, and I I don't because I think it's biologically determined um there there was a um you know pe- people like what is his name stephen pinker and jonathan Haidt, um amongst others they uh, they uh link the religious tendency to our um to, to the biological requirement of human beings to impute um you know theories of mind to to other uh animals and 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 possibly even things that you know it's very important to us to be able to tell whether the thing that we're face to face with has has a mind or not and um if if that is your tendency you could easily get into the position of of recognizing some sort of mind within an impersonal force or in an object or an animal um now i am uh, you know, I, I think that even even from a theistic perspective, being able to recognize minds would would be an important uh, uh, feature of humanity when it came to recognizing the you know recognizing the divine or spirits or whatever. So I, I don't think we 
you know, I think that Haidt and, and Pinker are atheists, but the, I think that the explanation still makes sense um, either way. So I don't think we're ever going to escape that. I think that in the contemporary world, conventional or traditional um, religions are much better at containing those forces or, or sort of con controlling and directing the, the, the human tendency to um, what I call metaphysical speculation so that it doesn't run wild and sort of uh, get out of control. Uh, and when it does run wild, you get these sort of spiritual breakdowns that you find in, say, 19th century occultism or uh, the the sort of seances and and weird sort of spiritism that took hold in the, in the Muslim world in the in the 20th century, uh, and now contemporary sort of uh, you know wokery wokeism whatever it 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 has a it definitely has a, a spiritual element and especially in the ideas of these vast impersonal forces that somehow need to be exercised or or sort of warded off with with um by means of special knowledge or or confessions and i'm thinking and anything from you know critical race theory to uh uh the 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 patriarchy lurking everywhere or or even on on the on the right you know the the sort of conspiracy theories that have cropped up or people who think that some aspect of postmodernist philosophy or feminism or something is this sort of vast force that you know has to be sort of kept away from you or have you so um yeah so what you're going to get a religion sort of whether you like it or not that's that's uh point number one point number two is yes howard is right that um what is arguably the impetus behind settled life well let, let me let me back up if you are going to settle down in a place you have that pre and, and you previously didn't that presupposes that you have changed your outlook as to sort of where you belong in the world and and what um, human beings are like and what the world is like. Uh, if you're going to live with other people to whom you are not immediately related, you that also presupposes some kind of change of of outlook. Why is it that people suddenly start living in in one place and they start dwelling together? Well, the evidence is that somehow we don't know how. But the evidence is that there was a, a cult of ancestors that, that developed within the Near East. And we find that we, it's, it's very hard to see its evolution, but you can see it fully formed in the earliest settlements and, and, and dwellings. People realized that they had um, shared common ancestors, that people, so that different families could, uh, you know, they were not sort of immediately related. They could nevertheless trace a, a, a sort of shared lineage within a specific place. So that's the earliest uh, religion for which we have evidence. Whether whether Paleolithic people had a religion, and they probably did, but what it was like, uh, we don't really know, but it must have been different from this new idea. 
So the cult of ancestors means you are you you have relatives and the relatives all belong in a specific place. So consequently, you find people are building their houses uh, over top of uh, burials, so that the people who live in a specific house are burying people over you know hundreds of years, uh, proverbially below the floorboards, or they are saving skulls. Uh, and decorating the skulls and keeping them sounds kind of weird to us, but that's what they did. And um, there are vestiges of, of this, I think, in um, uh, Mediterranean and Near Eastern customs uh, surrounding masks. The, the Romans were very big on masks, that you had your ancestors' death masks in your foyer, uh, and you would sort of collect them over... Uh, generations and so forth, and there would be sort of public processions of them where you would, uh, I think Polybius talks about reading out the deeds of your ancestors as the masks are being carried around. So that is the religion which I think is reflects the outlook of, of early uh, civilization. And, you know, I, I, it survives to, to some extent w- within all the great uh, religions and especially in, you know, uh, something like Confucianism, where the, the idea of, of an, you know, where, where families have ancestral shrines or there, there are um, uh, huge emphasis on filial piety over, you know, multiple generations and that your the spirits of your ancestors are somehow watching over you or guiding you or somehow influencing life. Um, this is an idea that is, I think, almost totally absent from the from the modern West. Um, you know, there are uh, really very few reasons um, for people to take an interest in the in the remote past. There are some sort of eccentric genealogists out there, but the the idea of a new world across the sea, where people sort of leave behind their their traditions and sort of become um, new and different people, or this kind of deracinated religious utopia of the Puritans, and so forth, is is sort of established in the new world, and the connection with the the old one is severed. You know, this is a tendency that has developed in the West, and I think that it is deranging. It is uh, it 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 disrupts, uh, as as you said before, the sense of the sense of uh, time and place, and the sense of continuity, and you know, I, let me be clear. I don't think that people are going to develop a cult of ancestors soon, but there has to be some kind of connection and stability if there's going to be uh, the kind of the, the kind of civilized life that I described. Now, incidentally, this is exactly what people like G.K. Chesterton and, and Edmund Burke are talking about. I think, I think Chesterton. In his usual way, he talks about like the democracy of the dead or something like that. This is exactly the same um, I, idea, and it's it, it's what John Stuart Mill and his liberal uh, ilk uh, lampooned as a kind of uh, despotism of custom, which they which they hated and, and wanted to destroy. So, you know, I kind of take a dim view of that. But you know, we, what we need to do is to sort of reestablish that 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 connection with with the past represented by uh, uh, represented by shared ancestors 
notwithstanding the particularities of our current moment, including smartphones and Twitter and whatever, I was struck by the book's insight that civilizational collapse is the rule rather than the exception. In that sense, let me ask a two-part question. First, what are, if any, universal causes of civilizational collapse? And second, if the past is a guide and collapse is probable, if we're here for a good time, not a long time, what is the case for not merely letting autonomy rip for as long as it'll last? Oh, my goodness. Well, yes, that, this is a very difficult question because it seems so appealing. This idea that, you know, you can sort of, uh, in modern jargon, you, 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 be, you can be your true self and you don't owe uh, anything to anybody. Uh, you, you're not shaped by any institutions or anything like that and that your or or parents for that matter and that um you can mold your own destiny and and um and so on and so on and so on superficially it seems like um an appealing idea and you know nobody nobody wants to say you know you you can't be yourself or whatever um but anthropologically, it, it doesn't work, and I, and I and I think that the 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 proof the proof that I would give is simply how unhappy people tend to be now uh, in 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 the West. The who is it? The the American Surgeon General just released a report on the epidemic of loneliness. Um, something like only thirty percent of people see their friends every day so you know it's it's pretty grim or and a similar the 30 percent of households consist of only one person and things like there, there are lots of lots of grim um indicators there that you can uh, look up you know i think it's an important question for us whether this was caused by the liberal sense of autonomy um, or by something else, and the reason you know it, it's very it's very tempting to try to blame liberalism. And I think that it does deserve to share some of the blame. But these problems have also cropped up in China and Russia, which are not liberal um, places at all. The atomization and um, you know loneliness and and sort of deracination and falling fertility and so forth. Like these are problems um, practically everywhere. They may be problems that are occasioned mostly by modernity itself or by technology. And that um, the ultimate, uh, like the, 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 the liberal angle is simply that this is a kind of post hoc philosophical justification for a tendency that has already been underway for some time and that this is just sort of making making a virtue of necessity if that's the right metaphor um now on the other hand if if liberalism is indeed the uh the the source of the problem you know that presupposes that the solution but i don't know if anybody has i don't i don't know if there's some sort of other alternative that anybody has yet and that we could either revert to or that hasn't been tried yet. And if you if you ask uh, Fukuyama, there's no alternative to it. So, you know, if it is the source of our problem and there's no alternative to it, that's pretty pretty upsetting. Um, however, uh, 
you know, atomization and this sort of like this sort of like deterioration, it seems to be a consequence of of all um, 20th century ideologies, both the Soviet and Nazi tyrannies um, uh, thrived on it. Um, and, you know, the Roman government also sought to a, a much lesser extent, but still sought to keep people divided and, you know, they eventually went so far as to ban um, clubs or the, the, the sorts of things that we might call guilds or civil society or things like that. Um, in the West, we didn't have to ban them. They all just sort of died out, I mean, maybe not completely, but mostly. This is the thesis of that famous book, um, Bowling Alone. And, and before that, there was another one called The Quest for Community. Uh, it could be that this, this dissolution is simply part of the rhythm of the, the fall and rise of, of civilization. It could be. Then again, you also have people like Peter Turchin claiming that the fundamental problem is the immiseration of the populace and the sort of elite overproduction. In other words, that they're, they're too, that you have a kind of bloated and incompetent um, upper class, you know, and this could this could describe many um, many moments in the past also. But nowadays, you know, I, I don't know if we'll ever have enough information to make some kind of vast theory about how these things collapse. But um, the fundamental thing for us now, the fundamental goal, should not be coercing people into ever greater freedom or sort of more um, autonomy. Um, but to reconnect people, especially after the pandemic. And, you know, if people really are as lonely and, 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 and sad as, as the surveys say, um, you know, that's, you know, like what, what other conclusion would you come to, but to say that whatever we have been doing so far has simply not been working. And it's time to, uh, I was about to say it's time to try something new, but perhaps it's time. <laughs> Perhaps it's time to try something old. Which is a good segue to my final question. Talk a bit about what a collective revival or renaissance might look like. How could we pull our civilization off the course that it's on towards greater decadence, decay, and as the book argues, ultimate collapse? Well, look at what worked before. Maybe it's too soon for that. I mean, the, the, but the, 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 in both East and West, the, the scholars and bureaucrats and so forth who were inspired by the achievements either of the Roman world or the earlier sort of Iranian, um, Sasanian empires, they, they were, um, they were inspired by ruins and by the, so, so by the sort of visual, uh, you know, memorials of the past as well as the, uh, literature, um, that was, that was left behind. So, Perhaps it's too soon for us to be looking back on, on anything in, in particular. Maybe we haven't been here in the new world long enough or the sort of post-war consensus hasn't been, you know, it, it's, it's not old enough to, but, you know, um, I would say that sooner or later that will probably happen. Although I don't know exactly what it will be that people look back on, but they will look back on something since that's a universal tendency. I, I was looking at some polling um, recently. The overwhelming majority of, of Americans 
thought that the world was better 50 years ago. Overwhelming. And um, only 10% of people in the nine richest countries in the world thought that things were getting better. So, you know, people will obviously quibble with this and say, you know, well, what are they talking about when, you know, they, they have smartphones and, you know, obviously these things. But the, the plain fact of the matter is that, you know, lots of people are are inclined, everyone, I think, almost, if, if not everyone, almost everyone, they're inclined to look back and to think about what worked, to think about what has been lost and to try to imitate it. In the period that we call the, the Renaissance, there was a drive not just to imitate, but also to surpass, to supersede uh, the ancients. And, you know, perhaps one day that will take hold here. Now, one of the benefits, if I may say so, at least in theory of, of a kind of globalized world or a multicultural society is that we have more to look back on, at least in theory. Right, and that placing these placing these various cultures and their histories on an on an equal level in theory uh, means that there's a greater variety to uh, imitate. But it's not going to happen if we keep hearing about how um, cultural appropriation is evil, or if uh, you know the the past counts for nothing and and should be forgotten, or that you know, only people of certain, uh, you know, only people of the uh, of the given sort of cultural group can comment or or think about their their own past. So that you know, a guy like me thinking about Confucius or something that that's somehow fundamentally wrong, or the postmodern idea that that there's some kind of uh, I don't know that you can't really look back. The, the, sorry, when you do look back on these things, all you see is uh, is the exercise of power or something like that. You know, just put all these things aside. You know, don't worry about them. And I think it will not be possible to keep back the the, the spirit of uh, nostalgia and imitation forever. Well, one aid in such renaissance would be the book in defense of civilization how our past can renew our present michael bonner thank you so much for joining us at hub dialogues thank you very much thank you for listening to this episode of the hub dialogues brought to you by the hub canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy we hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>